Hello, fellow adventurers, and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin, and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop strategy card games. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. This week, I have the honor of hosting one of the best game designers in history. I want to talk to him for quite a while and I'm very happy um, that today I have the chance to do so. He has been designing many, many games over the last uh, 20 years and is having a huge success with most of them. What makes his games and his designs special and unique for me personally is how he always manages to keep player turns short but also very diverse at the same time. Um, often you don't have the entirety of all possible options available um, in a turn, uh, what makes those turns feel, feel very different. Um, this is especially true for some of his most known games like Race for the Galaxy, Roll for the Galaxy and Res Arcana, for example. Um, another thing that these games have in common is that they are using um, victory points in a clever way to determine the winner of the game. And that is actually the topic that we are going to talk about today. Um, but he also designed many other games um, without victory points like uh, Pandemic Expansion. So I think he's an, he's an expert um, to explain us when and how to use those victory points. So please welcome with me Tom Lehman. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, for, for me, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So um, I'm very excited um, to have the chance to talk to you um, about uh, victory points, uh, player agency, and yeah, uh, how to use victory points and how to use them at the end game triggers and stuff like that. But before we dive into that topic, could you please uh, briefly introduce yourself and um, tell the listeners uh, where your love for games comes from and um, yeah, how you got into the industry in the first place? So I grew up um, alternating overseas and around Washington, D.C. My father was in the uh, U.S. Foreign Service, uh, specifically the Agency for International Development, which is um, part of our State Department. And uh, we didn't have very many games overseas, right? We had you know, very small weight allowances of stuff we could take. So that I started inventing games as a child. And that was something that got me interested into games and uh, thinking about games from a very young age. I got into the gaming uh, hobby sort of the wrong way um, in that I started as a self-publisher. I've been in the hobby now for 30 years. And... Uh, I had made uh, some money in high tech, and so I uh, got to lose a bunch of money as a self-publisher. Um, and uh, then I became a freelancer, and about 15 years it took me to become a freelancer full-time, uh, paying for it. And I've now been doing that for another um, uh, over a dozen years now. That's, that's quite the journey, isn't it? Yes, so um, I, I hope to get there sometime in the future as well. And I know that um, this is uh, the place where many of, of the listeners of this podcast also want to, want to be in the future. So we are very, very happy and keen to learn from you. Um, so 
let's come to the to the topic of victory points. Um, maybe before we before we go too deep into yeah, how to use them and um, clever ways to to apply them in a game, maybe um, you can briefly define what victory points for you actually are. Um, do you have a good definition for them, or how would how would you explain them to someone who who doesn't know them? Well, I think I actually want to start a little bit earlier than that, if, if, if I can. So, you know, for me, there's a bunch of related topics here. There's victory points, there's goals, there's scoring systems, there's victory point chips, and there's also player agency. And all of those things sort of fit together. And when you're first sort of fumbling around with a design, two of the really basic questions that you need to be asking yourself as you, uh, you know, start putting down ideas for a game that you're going to design is, well, how can the game end? How do you win, right? If it's a competitive game, or how does everyone win if it's a cooperative game, right? So, you know, those are sort of important questions that you need to be asking yourself very early in the design process. And one of your choices is to not have victory points, to have goals, right? And that's particularly useful for pure co-ops such as pandemic, right? You have a single goal, you know, find a cure for every disease. Um, there you often have a sub question, right? Not just how do you win, but how do you lose, right? Because a uh, pandemic, like many co-op games, you can lose by cube death, by running out of time, or by outbreak death, right? So, you know, these very basic questions of how does the game, how do I win? What is my goal? How can the game end are good questions that you need to ask yourself. And we're all familiar with, you know, various games that have goals and don't have victory points, right? Checkmate in chess, curing four diseases in pandemic, capturing Dracula in the fury of Dracula, right? Those are games that just have a goal. But some games, you know, consist of multiple rounds, you know, what we call hands in card games where you might have a goal for a hand, like make your contract in bridge or go out first in tissue. Um, but now the game, you know, is being broken up into these hands and you need some way to accumulate scores over a series of hands. And that introduces a whole bunch of things that are related to scoring systems Things like partial progress, being ahead or being behind, catch up, you know, how do I catch up if I'm behind? And all of those sort of issues start to come into it. So, you know, those are the things, even before you get to victory points, that you need to be thinking about. And you have that decision of, do I want to have a goal in the game? Or do I want to use some sort of scoring system possibly with victory points uh, in a game. So far, so good? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great introduction into the, into the topic. And um, yeah, that's a, that kind of decision is uh, 
is valid for most of the game designers that start at some point to to think about their game and the um, some kind of uh, yeah end game resolution, how they want to determine when the game is over and who is uh, who is the winner, um, whether it be the the one of the players in a competitive game or um, the AI or the players in a in a co-op game. Um, so I have seen victory points mainly in the area of um, of competitive games. Um, do you also use them or haven't used them in um, in in co-op games, or would you say that they they are non-existent there? Well, I mean, one thing that Matt and I once Matt Leacock, the designer of Pandemic, and I once looked at for doing, and I think it may have been implemented for the app version of Pandemic, is some way to score your position at the end of the game if you want. You know, how many turns did you have left? How many cubes are on the board? How many outbreaks you had? Some sort of system that would give you a score and rank how well you did. So one of the reasons that sometimes you add a scoring system to a co-op game or to a game that is built around a goal is to be able to compare people for tournament purposes, for scoring, you know, the high scorer on the on the leaderboard of an online um, version of the game. So there can be reasons to do scoring even when you have goals. Um, I do think that having goals works best for co-op games in that it provides a simple thing that everyone at the table can easily understand. If you have a scoring system and VPs and a threshold for a uh, co-op game, then you it, there can be some confusion about, well, you know, I don't, you know, some player may not understand the system and may not be able to internalize the trade-offs, whereas a simple, straightforward goal, they can think about a lot easier. Um, one of the, and I want to avoid spoilers, but one of the things in Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is that you do sort of score yourself at the end to see how well your team did over the series of 12 to 24 games that you played. And one of the complaints that some people had about Pandemic Season 1 is that it wasn't very transparent, that people didn't sort of understand the trade-offs and the decisions that they were making during the game to appreciate how their final rating would be. Right? And so once you get into the series of games or um, a series of hands that form a game, then you're forced to think about these issues uh, a lot more, even if in a given hand, like in Bridge, you have a goal, make a contract, or go out first in tissue, right? Yeah, and you meant that some people were missing that kind of transparency in the end. Um, so do you think that some kind of the scoring system, um, if it be victory points, for example, um, do you think that should always be revealed or should that be hidden? Or what are the, the advantages of having it uh, hidden or revealed? 
There are various ideas in that area, and that's a good question, and we may want to circle back to it. I think there has to be some transparency. Um, it may not be completely transparent, and you have that issue in games where you have all the information, but you know people are accumulating points behind the screen, like in Euphrat and Tigris, right? Um, where people know the scores if they're tracking it. And so why aren't you just having the scores be out in front, right? And there you get into the, well, we don't want people to know too much, but we want people to have a general idea of philosophy. And, you know, that's something I've actually talked about with Reiner Knizia. And, you know, he feels for a certain audience, you need that blurring. And for another audience, you might not, you might want complete transparency. Can you elaborate on that? What kind of audience would uh, would prefer to have it uh, revealed, and what kind of audience would would prefer to have it have it hidden? A more casual audience often doesn't want to calculate things precisely, right? Whereas your more gamer, you know, a hardcore gamer, um, often wants to feel like they lost not because they didn't remember that, oh, you were ahead in blue, right? Because they lost track of how many blue cubes you had behind your screen. They want to feel that they lost because of a decision they made. Whereas a casual player, often that's like more information than they want to be able to be processing. So the general theory that Reiner has, and I don't completely agree with this, but his general theory is that more casual players, you want to be hiding some of the scoring and more uh, calculating hardcore players, you want to try to make it transparent. And yeah, would, would you also share with us uh, why you do not come, uh, agree with it completely? Well... Again, you know, I, I just uh, mentioned the fact that there are many players, gamers, whose psychology is they want to feel that that memory is not part of the game, right? And, I mean, here we're getting into a cultural thing, right? Games, in order to survive in the European Middle Ages, right? where the church, you know, wasn't so keen on games because games could involve gambling, and that is, you know, not good, according to church dogma. And um, so one of the ways that they tried to make gaming, like chess and other things, be palatable was to say, oh, we're teaching children how to memorize and remember things, right? And out of that came this idea that taking notes at the table and um, memorizing and, and tracking your opponent's scores is a mental skill and part of the skill of playing the game, as opposed to, you know, uh, it being just bookkeeping. And so there's a tradition where you're not supposed to be tracking that explicitly, you know, that, 
if if we're playing a game where you're putting cubes behind a screen score, I shouldn't be sitting here making a note. Oh, you put two red cubes. Oh, you put two green cubes now. Oh, one blue. You know, I shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, that's a very much of a cultural thing. Um, and there are certainly, you know, if you look at online implementations, they generally give you the exact score. Right in Dominion, yeah, we uh, people put victory cards into their decks, and I can track how many points you have in your deck if I want to. But if you play online, they just do it for you automatically. The decision in most online games is that that is just bookkeeping and not a skill part of the game. Yes, I absolutely agree, and that you see that in many games, for example. Uh, one that just came to my mind is um, in Magic the Gathering, the digital implementation. Um, if one card goes back to the opponent's hand, for example, that you have seen before, it stays revealed for you. That's uh, right. So you don't have to have to remember it. Um, and that's another part of bookkeeping. And many, many, I know that many, many players um, dislike the bookkeeping aspect of of games. So I think it's that's a right. that's a very good reason to 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 make the um, um, the victory points or the scoring system um, revealed and transparent. Right. And, and that's my philosophy to do that. But Reiner feels that that's off-putting to more casual gamers. And that's where the, dif the, the, the difference is. Okay. Um, you know, on a personal level, this was brought home to me when I had a friend who was, um, she suffered from epilepsy. That was only partially um, corrected by drugs. And so she would have a seizure about once every seven to 10 days. And, you know, in her case, it was like almost watching a computer reboot. And, you know, she couldn't play a game on the day that she had a seizure. You know, her short-term memory was just completely shot. But the day later... She could, but she couldn't track as much as she normally could when, you know, she was, hadn't, wasn't suffering any uh, ill effects from a, seizure, from a recent seizure. And so it seemed perfectly reasonable, even when playing face-to-face -face in groups that frowned upon taking notes, for her to be able to take notes. I mean, why penalize her for her medical condition when I'm allowed to wear glasses when I play <laughs> in order to be able to see, yeah, you know, small information on cards. So, you know, that sort of brought home to me how much it's a cultural factor. I see. I see. So, um, yeah, many, many of the, um, of the best games in the market really use uh, use victory points like i don't know terraforming mars wingspan terra mystica seven wonders yep. through the ages race for the galaxy and many many more so yep. um i would like to 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 understand um why you think it is such a popular mechanic well i think the easiest way to start thinking about victory points in games is the first Think about scoring systems for sports, because sports are, you know, in a very large definition of what a game is, they are games, right? And so, 
you know, if we think of a game like, um, I think what Europeans call association football, what we call soccer, um, you have points that are scored over time, but a point is a point is a point. Whereas in uh, a sport like U.S. football, you score different number of points for different things. Three points for a kicking field goal, six for a touchdown, one point if you go for a high percentage point after touchdown with a kick, or two if you try a much more riskier run or pass and are successful, right? And this differing amounts of VEEPs for different activities in a game is, I think, at the core of scoring systems, right? You know, so uh, the football VEEPs, by varying for different activities, are trying to value the three fundamental parts of football, running, passing, and kicking. Here I'm talking about U.S. football. Um, but the moment you introduce VEEPs into, some, into a game, into any activity, where you say, we're going to reward certain activities with victory points, then you immediately have the issue that players may stop playing uh, to simply you know, play the game. They might start playing to the scoring system. Right. I mean, we can consider point salad football, right, where you get one point for you score one point. If you get a, a first down, you've gotten 10 yards of progress and two points. If you throw a pass quite a distance downfield, if you were to add those things, suddenly the play of the game would change very much. We've seen that in other sports. For example, in volleyball, the switch to rally scoring has altered the game considerably. Or in basketball, the three-point three shots have changed the game a lot in the last 20 years. And, you know, if you look at how a sport evolves over time, you can see that there's often a choice that the organization that sets the rules for a sport has to do. If they think the game is becoming too stagnant in some way, they might either change the rules or they can change the scoring system, right? Those are two different options. So when the fear was in football that kicking field goals was just too easy and, you know, that the, the winning strategy was just to get to the 50 or maybe 40 point, 40 yard line and kick a field goal and, you know, not even worry about trying to do touchdowns. One of the reactions was to take those field goal pulse posts, which used to be at the touchdown line and move them back to the end of the end zone to make it harder to kick a field goal, right? Instead of changing the points, they just said, let's change the rules. Whereas in basketball, when there was this feeling that, you know, the game was clogging up too much, you know, in the inside game and blocking, and it just wasn't that interesting, there, rather than change the rules for contact or things like that, they instead just said, okay, let's put a ring and say you get three points if you shoot from beyond that ring. And that opened up the game. And that choice, when we look at various sports and how they've evolved over time, that's a choice that we as game designers 
have whenever we are developing a game and you go, you know, I wanted them to reward this sort of activity and they're not doing it enough. Should I make it worth more points or do I need to change the rules, right? That choice about, well, do I want points for everything, you know, a sort of point salad approach or do I only want points for sort of major accomplishments? Those are two very basic things that we have to think about when we add a scoring system to a game. Because the moment we add the scoring system, players will play to the scoring system. You know, they don't care about what's in your head about, oh, people should be trying to do this. They're just going, where, where are the points? I really like that uh, that sports analogy that you that you that you brought up and um, what they are doing when they are changing the um, the scoring system for American football, for example, or basketball, whatever. They are balancing the game, and that's exactly what we are going to do as game designers all the time um, when we are playtesting our games and try to make it um, as competitive, uh, not as competitive as possible, but um, as balanced as possible, so that um, we try to guide our players to take the actions that we think are fun in the game. And that's actually um, what they try to do in, in, in your sports example as well. They, they, they've seen that people are not, or the players in American football do not uh, play for touchdowns uh, enough. But that's actually something that um, I would guess um, the audience would like to see. Yep. And that's actually part of the fun of the game. So they needed to to adjust. And that's um, exactly what we need to do as game designers as well. So um, I really like your example um, of how to use um, the scoring system or victory points um, to, 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 make, to make that happen. And I also think that this is um, a very good, um, a good example of um, why victory points are used, used so frequently in games because they can really help you to to guide the players to choose the actions you want them to choose and um yeah kind of um help you as a designer to 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 balance those different different actions that you want to put into your game and they do this in a really con i would say in a convenient way because it's uh, quite easy to um To, 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 um, to make small or big adjustments that you can just, uh, I don't know, increase the victory points for a certain action by, by, by one or so. And that's a minor adjustment, but you could also um, adjust it by the factor of three or so to make it a, a, a bigger adjustment. So I think they're quite a convenient way to do balancing. Would you agree? Um, it is, although, you know, I have very strong and somewhat different ideas about balancing. Um, and that's a whole big other topic. But in general, yes, I agree with what you're saying. And I think one of the advantage of looking at sports and thinking about that is it gives us another area to see these examples that is not tied into a board game. You know, it lets us concentrate on the bigger picture in some sense. Uh, which is why I use the example when I talk about this. N now I'm going to start turning to board games, right? So think about financial games. Financial games where the goal is the very straightforward one, have the most money at the end of the game. You know, they have a built-in scoring system, right? You're doing things with money. 
right? You don't have this sort of artificiality of, of victory points. You have just, it's money. And so, I, you know, one of the areas of games that I have worked on besides card games and so on is the 18xx train games. Uh, I've done several games in there. And that's a example of a game where, you know, your score is simply your money at the end of the game, where you're, where that's composed of two different things, the dividends, your cash on hand, plus your final portfolio value of your stocks, right? You have a mixture of stocks. And so here we can see that, ah, this is a built-in way of rewarding different things going on in the game, right? It's not just a, you know, which railroad is making the most money, but who owns the shares in that railroad? And, you know, it makes your investment decisions about, do I invest to help capitalize my own railroad? Or, no, this railroad over here is doing really well, and I need to make sure I get some shares in it. Similarly, you can sometimes have uh, decisions in the game where an early railroad that does reasonably well is getting a very high stock value, but maybe isn't paying out so much. And that built-in trade-off between you know, how much dividends does it make and how much is its share appreciation is by having that single dollar uh, victory point system is automatically part of the game, part of the trade-off. Um, notice that also that in a financial game where money is your victory points, if you make a late game investment and it doesn't pay off, you've lost victory points, right? So the sense in which investing in something carries risk is automatically built into the, into the scoring system. And that's quite a bit different from many of the games you mentioned that use victory points. In most board games with victory points, you don't have an option to spend the victory points. You get the points, you have them. Financial games have this very interesting property where if the, you know, the, the, if your score at the end is cash on hand plus portfolio value, you have to think about your investments. It's possible to actually lose victory points. That's a very good example. And that was actually something I wanted to ask you anyway, um, because uh, I think that it's quite interesting to use victory points that you accumulated during a game um, for for several different different things. So um, on on one hand, I on one side I, I really like it to um, to kind of play with the victory points so that are not static some static amount of uh, of coins that I collect over time and they can never be touched again um, because there is some kind of loss aversion also for people i mean also people don't like to lose money that they invested in some stock for example um, that's something that sometimes it doesn't feel good for for players if you take away um, victory points that they have um have accumulated during the game with with with, with interesting and hard choices um so but that's on only some aspect of it so you could have uh, 
um, actions in the game that allow other players to steal victory points that could potentially create this bad feeling for the other player that's taken away those victory points. But you could also have um, interesting ways to decide yourself if you want to spend victory points to invest them in another stock, for example, um, or put it into another basket that might uh, pay out in the end of the game. So um, I would be interested to learn a little bit more about those um, different ways of using um, victory points and um, the kind of different mechanism that you have seen or uh, thought about or implemented in games um, to play with victory points during the game, except the fact of uh, yeah using them as a, as a scoring mechanic. Right. And I think financial games are the big example where... If the if your score at the end of the game is your money, you know, cash on hand plus portfolio value, that those automatically bring all those things into it. And you know, I, I don't want this podcast to turn into you know beating up on Reiner, but <laughs> one of my problems with the game Stevenson's Rocket, of uh, uh, one of his games, Stevenson's Rocket, is that in the merger. I get victory. I, I get victory points, which he has done at least in the version I played as you know paper money, and I can't spend that money. And that feels to me incredibly um, awkward and um, uh, not true to the subject. You know, here I am, this big shot investor, and I made a bunch of money, and I can't spend it. You know, and there he's yeah. done a financial game where money is a scoring system, but you have no way to invest the money you make early on. And so that brings me to, I think, a general class of games that we all sort of know, which is engine building games. And, you know, we, we sort of know the drill right, the overall shape of an engine building game, which is first we build our engines and then there's some cutoff point where now we just run our engines for victory points, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a good example of a game of that form would be uh, St. Petersburg, uh, the uh, Hans and Gluck Bern Brunhofer game, um, where, you know, Early on in the game, we're just trying to get money. And then later on in the game, we don't care about money. It's just victory points. And, you know, there's that shift after typically the fourth round where you, you know, getting additional money is not what the game is about. It's all about the victory points. And a lot of games have that shape, right? These so-called engine building games. And one of the issues in those games is that if among the choices you can make early on in the game is buying victory points, you know, uh, in St. Petersburg, it's buying the blue cards, the blue buildings that score victory points. Um, that's sort of a trap, right? Early on in the game, if you do that, as opposed to building your engine, you will lose the game. And so one of the big questions whenever you are 
designing and engine building games and using victory points is how do you make going for early victory points not a trap for the players? That's a very good, uh, a good um, explanation here. And I have the feeling that this is true for many, many games because most of those engine building games, they also need some kind of uh, flat uh, translation from, I don't know, money to victory points for the end game to give people a chance to translate their um, their resources into into victory points in the end game. Um, so, do you have some good uh, so solutions for this for this problem to not have this option uh, be shiny uh, and attractive to play it in the early game and and be a trap for them? Yes, I mean the converting at the end of the game. Most most games uh, have a conversion factor that is unfavorable so it's sort of your dribs and drabs left over you convert up into victory points um you know um terra mystica for example does that uh lots of games you can get a couple of victory points for what's left over after your final turn uh, but most of those games you basically within the game get your victory points and it's just your little leftover resources that you convert at the end um, but yes, this is something that I've struggled with and I've come up with several different solutions, uh, to, you know, make early victory points, not be a trap, um, but still have it be an engine building game where things are going on. So in my game race for the galaxy, my basic approach was to say that the six cost developments which score bonus points at the end of the game, but they also have abilities within the game that they are under-costed for the amount of points they produce at the end of the game, but they are over-costed for the abilities they provide within the game. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's unpack that a moment. Um, you can, uh, if you look at something that gave you, say, um, plus two cards, that might be normally a four cost development, you know, a, a minus two on your settled cost, you know, like replicant robots. And if I then give you, you know, merchant guild that gives you plus two cards on produce, well, I'm making you pay six for something that you can get mostly the same effect with a four-cost development, right? That's an example of it being over-costed for what you get in the game. But at the end of the game, the Merchant Guild scores two for every production world you have and one for every good left in your tableau, the second edition one. And now, well, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of points for that six cost that you paid. And this under cost, over cost thing means that you are interested in putting down those six devs, those six cost developments, but they're big. They're, they're, they're large relative to your hand size, which is 10 cards. And you have the card itself and six to pay for it. That's taking up a lot of your resources on a turn. 
And so now you have that tough decision. When in the game do I want to build that six dev? I mean, I definitely want it by the end of the game, but that plus two on produce, I'd like to get that earlier. But six is a lot to pay. And so I make this tension around the six devs, and that helps to blur that, you know, sudden we switch from building the engine to getting Veeps. Because you want that six dev sort of as early as possible to uh, start getting the benefits from it, but not but as late as possible to avoid the pain of investing in it. And so now you have this two-way tension and this interesting decision in the mid game of when do I put this card down? So that's one of the I like, ways. I like that. Yeah, that's one of the ways that I've gone to, you know, look at this whole, how do I uh, get victory points to be interesting earlier than the very end of the game, right? And that's different than, for example, what San Juan did, where the big cards that score lots of victory points, that's all they do. And so people are like, well, I'll spend it, and there's three copies of it in the deck, and I'll find it later in the game, and it's the last thing I'll build. I just have to make sure I build it before the end of the game, right? And there's no huge tension around that. But, uh, the only tension in a, in a four-player game of San Juan is, well, will I see that card again, or maybe I just save it in my hand? But, uh, you know, there's no big incentive to build it before the end of the game. So that's one sort of approach that I've used. Another approach is to say, I mean, so far we've talked about victory points. We haven't talked about victory point chips, right? Yeah, let's talk about that. And, um, and you know, there are many games where you score, you know, on, the, on an outer track, the Wolfgang um, Kramer's. Uh, scoring track around the board sort of idea. And uh, and and people go, oh, that's elegant. Why are you using victory point chips? Why don't you just put the scoring system around the board? And the reason I like victory point chips in games is I like to do something where you have a pool of victory point chips and one of the ways you can trigger the end game is by exhausting that pool. But when you exhaust the pool, then you add in some large denomination chips so that everyone still gets all the victory points they're entitled to. It's just that was the trigger for how the game ended. Now, one of the subtle properties of that type of system, which I use in in race and role and so on, is it says there's this semi-limited number of veeps, right? We will get all the veeps we're entitled to on that final turn. But if, say, you know, there's 24 veeps there, and I've been accumulating veeps during the game, and I've gotten 20 of them, while you've been building this huge engine, 
that now you're going to crank for victory points. And so you crank for victory points, you score 16 victory points. And I score my little engine, which is maybe size six now. Okay, so 20 of the 24 victory points are gone. Then you want 16 of them and I get six more. Okay, where it's clearly, it's the end of the game. We get our points, but you don't get to, to crank your engine a second time, right? Because that I took too many early on. If, on the other hand, I'm doing something else, building the tableau and so on, then you could you know, build your big engine, run it for 16 points. Maybe I get two or three, but the game isn't over. And then run it another round for another 16. And that's huge. You get 32 out of that. And by having a limited pool that exhausting it is the end game trigger, now there's a reason to go for beeps early on. Because I can eat away at the pool, and even though your engine might not be big, might be bigger than mine, you don't get to run it as much. And that introduces this really nice tension of going for victory points earlier versus later. Yeah, it gives the players another another strategy. I mean, it's not just about building the engine. It's about uh, having a, a good idea of the overall economy on the table as well. So you're not... I think a big problem of those engine building games oftentimes is that there is not enough player interaction. Um, mm. So you do not really have to... Often you do not have to care about um, what your opponent does you should probably um to compare maybe you're fighting over cards in, on a marketplace or whatsoever um but oftentimes especially for players who are playing those games for the first first time or so they really focus on um on, on their tableau and uh, and their board and um i think this is uh, also a good a good example um or a good mechanism to make sure that they um have a at least a, a bit of an eye on the on the opponent's side of the table as well to make sure that they um, do not end the game before they they want it to to end. That's yeah. right, and well, at least I prepare mean, for it. Now, the moment you do this, right, some other issues come come to bear. I mean, consider Dominion. Dominion does that. They put out the 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 green cards, the provinces, your duchies, and so on. And the game ends when that stack of uh, that stack of provinces, you know, is empty. And so if I start buying provinces, you're on the other side of the table thinking, oh, well, uh, maybe I need to start buying provinces. You know, I was thinking of building my deck and getting it a little bit thinner and a little bit more money in it, but maybe I don't have the time to do that. Right. So Dominion is also doing it where Donald and I differ and where I probably would have designed Dominion differently is um, after the provinces are done, because turn order matters so much in Dominion, I would say you finish out that turn and you use ghost provinces and everyone can get as many as they're entitled to. Right. And in fact, I played Dominion in four different groups. And in two of the groups, that's the rule we use. Uh, we just say, yep, 
it's the final turn, but you know, you were the, the last player, you know, the, the say it's a three player game, player two exhausted the last province, player three still takes their final turn and they get to buy um, uh, provinces and we just give them a pair of duchies or whatever, right? And that way everyone gets to run their engine the same number of turns. And Donald didn't do that. And his reasoning, right, and this illustrates another general point to be thinking about when you design these things. His reasoning is that Dominion is a very short game and that typically during development, people were playing lots and lots of Dominion games in a row. And so the rule of the winner goes last in the next round sort of automatically balances things. You know, they'll go last in the next in the next game. And so that if you're playing a series of games tends to balance out this issue. But, you know, in some of the groups I play with, they use Dominion as let's play one or two Dominion hands as our, you know, closer to the evening after we've played some other game. And there we find that very unsatisfying. Right. Whereas if you're playing, as I do in another group where we, you know, get together very infrequently, but then we'll play, you know, uh, nine games of Dominion, then we're perfectly happy using the rules as published. And so you have to think about, you know, when you're designing this sort of, you know, how does your game end? Well, one of the things is how does your game start? Is there a first player advantage? Do I need to ensure that they're equal turns? You know, and all those considerations also come into play. And the scheme where you use points and then you have some large denomination points that you can add and everyone gets all the points that they're entitled to tends to deal with this equal turn problem. You can now let everyone have equal turns. Race, of course, avoids it by having simultaneous turns. Which I personally like quite a bit to have simultaneous uh, turns. But um, yeah, that um, that is another topic for another show, probably. Um, so one one question with regards to um, using the victory points as endgame triggers. Um, do you think it is um, it it should be the only endgame triggers? a trigger in a game or should it be just one of the one of the end game triggers i personally like games that end multiple ways right um there are exceptions but i like having multiple ways because automatically that adds strategy to the game right makes your game less tactical you sort of is this game going in this direction where we're ending on um uh victory points or is it going in this other direction where we're ending on tableau and i think that tends to emphasize player agency it's one of the reasons i tend to avoid games that are set number of rounds now there are players who really like to optimize and they would they would prefer knowing that this is a four round game or a six round game Whereas I like to have games where it's a little unclear how long the game will be, and it will depend on the collective actions of all the players. But I like that amount mm. of agency. Okay. 
another question goes into the direction of um, the the scale of the scoring system. So, um, I mean, I've seen games that uh, end with, let's say, 10 victory points. Um, and there are others when you count your victory points at the end of the game, this goes up to 200, 300 or whatsoever. Um, and my feeling oftentimes is that as soon as you have many, many victory points, it becomes even more about the the hunt for the victory point and the um, and just about the math and uh, and the numbers and less about the theme of the game. So, what is the kind of scale for victory points that you typically try to to shoot for? Is uh, and do you have these these considerations in mind when you when you decide whether you give for an action two or three victory points or five victory points? So, do you try to keep it? Um, keep it low or um do you do, don't care so much about this this the, the scale how far it goes up well i think you care about the relative scale of things i'm not so sure you care about the absolute scale of things i mean you know uh here's several different games that i'll use as examples russian railroads right the hans and Gluck game russian rails russian railroads one of those two um in that game, you typically, the winner, will have between about 375 and 450 victory points. The game really has this exponential growth thing going on. Because in the first round, you're typically scoring about 7, 10 victory points each player. And then maybe in the second round, it's 20 and the third round, it's 50. And then, you know, it just starts to really ramp up. And it can seem a little weird when you're, you know, early on and you're like, oh, I'll choose, you know, I'll, I'll choose to say fourth and just lose, you know, I'll, I, I'll, I'll be getting, because of the way the pass mechanism works, um, passing early, um, uh, I'm sorry, being late in the turn means that when you pass, you get more victory points. So if you're the fourth player to pass, you get four victory points. If you're the second player to pass, you get two victory points. And, you know, back when we were moving the counters and, you know, the counters only moved 10 spaces in that first round, that four and that two, you know, significant. But at the end of the game, when we're moving the counter, you know, 110 spaces, <laughs> you know, the two and the four really don't seem to matter. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's a game where you wonder about the scaling, but it actually works pretty well. Um, you know, you have lots of little victory points, and then you have some very big victory points near the end. And uh, the whole system seems to work okay. So I would give that as an example where the scaling is pretty extreme and yet seems to work. Um, I think the real issue has to do with granularity, right? And this has to do with costs and other things. Um, if you, you know, sometimes when you design a game, you're sitting there and you go, oh, in order to balance that, I, I would have to add half a victory point, right? And so one of your solutions, of course, is to double all your victory points and have it be plus one. 
and but sometimes you sort of go, no, the, the, the number of victory points I have and how they relate to something else, you know, like the, the resources or the cards or so on, feels about right. And on those things that could be half of victory point one way or the other, I'll just either have to round up or round down and you accept it. Right. So you have choices there as the designer about, well, how granular do you want to make things? And in some games, I think it's easier to see things with a, a lower granularity. In Raise Arcana, because I only give you one action per player uh, a time, you know, each time you take a turn, you get just one action. And you have these very linear uh, places of power where it's convert, you know, near the, you know, on the final turn, take an action, convert these essences to this victory point. If you had to convert, you know, twice as many because you went for a more granular uh, approach, it would become tedious. Hmm. And so there are times in Raise Arcana, as I work on expansions and so on, where I sort of go, yeah, that's really half a victory point. Mm. And how do I want to try to adjust it? Do I shave off the cost? Do I do this? Do I do that? And it can be a little awkward from a design point of view. On the other hand, I think the reasoning for why I wanted a low granularity game uh, was a valid one. So I think it's a question, I, I don't think it's a, a question that has a single answer. I think it has to do with what is the granularity you need for the game? What is the granularity that feels natural for the game? And that, in many ways, I think is more important and should guide sort of how many victory points you're scoring. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we are approaching the one-hour mark, and I want to be respectful uh, with your time as well. So um, are there any other um, yeah, topics uh, that you would like to, to address or that you would like to give to uh, uh, some kind of... Uh, Uh, share your experience with with newer game designers that are maybe at the moment um, about to design a game with victory points. Are there any uh, tips that you want to to share or topics that you want to dive into? Well, I will say uh, mostly I've covered you know the topic. You know, I was sort of looking at the time as well. Um, but I have a game coming out called Dice Realms, and in there I made the choice that you have three pools. You have a victory point pool with chips like I've been talking about. You also have grain, and you also have a negative victory point pool. And there I went with the decision that your game ending trigger is if any one of the three pools runs out. And that turns out to have some interesting play properties. That is, you sort of, the grain production in particular, if you, when winter is rolled on the fate die, you owe one grain for every dice you have. And um, uh, so you need to have grain, but if everyone collectively buys too much grain, the game can just end. 
Um, there are some powers that let you convert grain to other things, but if you're not rolling those faces and you all are, you know, overdoing the, you know, grain production, overemphasizing grain production, suddenly that game could end very, very quickly. On the other hand, if you're all saying, oh, I'll just accumulate some, some negative victory points. I won't worry about the grain. I'll just be trying to upgrade the, the faces on my dice because this is a game where you pop out the faces and replace them with better faces. Um, th then, in, in that situation, uh, you could possibly end up in problems where, you know, every time that winter is rolled and you don't have the grain, you're taking one of those negative victory points counters. And if collectively you all exhaust that, the game could end and you could all have, the, you know, possibly negative scores. And so it ends up being a game with sort of three tight ropes of grain and negative victory points and positive victory points that you're walking. And I found that that was a very interesting tension to play with. So, you know, one thing to think about is that this whole idea of a pool that can trigger the end game doesn't just apply to victory points. It can apply to other things, resources, and so on. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. So um, where can people find out more about that upcoming game that you just mentioned? Well, first it has to get a, uh, a print uh, a date, which it's supposed to get in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, until that happens, uh, it, it, won't, it won't exist. Uh, so I would say, you know, uh, pay attention. It is listed on BoardGameGeek. And if you're interested in Dice Realms, you can go see some more about it. I've demoed it and done some videos and so on. Okay, then I will put that into as a link into the show notes. So if you want to follow it, you can just click on, uh, click on the link in the show note and you will find um, your way to Dice Realms and be, um, yeah, have the chance to, to learn more about it and um, <clears throat> yeah, get involved in it. So cool. Martin, Marvin, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I hope it was useful for you. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure it is useful for, for many other game designers out there. And um, yeah, I always love to talk um, to talk to experienced game designers. And I'm always very, very impressed how, um, how they share their experience and, and help other game designers out there. This is, uh, this is what makes this, uh, this entire community so great and so different from, from other industries. And um, yeah, I want to say thank you to you um, for being so open-minded and um, yeah for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you. Good luck with all your game designs and good luck to all the listeners on their game designs. Take Thanks. care. Thanks a lot. So for you listeners, until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.